Good morning, everyone. God bless you, those who are coming in the morning and coming this afternoon for our primary uh, service. I hope you get an extra uh, crown in your heavenly, or an extra jewel in your heavenly crown. <laughs> uh, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, a few months ago, I was sitting and writing my sermon at uh, the Whole Foods down the road from my house. You know, they've got coffee bar and everything there, and I was sitting, drinking a coffee and writing my sermon on my computer, and a gentleman well, went past me this way, and I thought, gosh, he has a familiar face, and he kind of gave me a friendly smile and a nod. He's wearing this nice little wool hat, dressed pretty nicely, and uh, he walked past me, and I thought, oh my gosh, who is that? I think that that was an actor. And uh, I thought about it for a few minutes and I thought, oh my gosh, because I had just watched a television show with him in it. That's uh, the actor Stanley Tucci. Now, not everybody knows who that is, but if you've seen the Hunger Games movie, he plays the guy that runs the kind of American Idol uh, show, Caesar Flickerman. But anyway, he's in a bunch of stuff and he's an Emmy Award winning actor. And I thought that that was definitely Stanley Tucci. And I've got to like work up the courage to go over there and just double check and say hi to him. And um, so after a few minutes of uh, uh, working up the courage, I got up and I walked over and he was sitting down at a table eating a salad and he uh, looked up at me and he said, hello, father. He was very friendly. And so I thought, OK. Um, and I said, I'm so sorry, but I just have to check. You're Stanley Tucci, aren't you? And he said, actually, I'm not. <laughs> and uh, I thought he was messing with me really for a minute. I said, are you are you serious? And he said, no, I'm really serious. I'm really not. He said, I was actually at a party and uh, at a friend's house in L.A. a couple weeks ago. And some ladies approached me and said, Mr. Tucci, can we have your autograph? And my friends really got a kicked out, kick out of it because I'm really not Stanley Tucci. And um, he was he was he was not lying. He, he really wasn't. And, and of course, I felt like a fool. But um, I wonder if Jesus felt like that Stanley Tucci look-alike in uh, our gospel passage today. Because um, while the people who are sitting at his feet notice that there's something special about him, they actually mistake his identity. They actually don't get the most central thing about his identity. Now, from our perspective, it's easy to point our fingers back into that day and say, all these silly people who didn't realize that Jesus was Lord and God, they thought he was less than that. They just thought he was some kind of a wonder worker. Um, But actually, there are ways that we Christians can live as if we're confused about Jesus's identity and who he is. And while our mistaken thinking about Jesus may be more subtle than the crowds in John's gospel, um, they can have consequences that are just as serious. Because perceiving Jesus rightly, understanding who he really is, is actually essential to the Christian life. Now we're going to be in um, the the story in John's Gospel, if you want to follow along in your uh, bulletin for just a minute. Um, John tells us that there's a large crowd of people following Jesus around, and he says, because they saw him healing sick people. So, you see, they're fascinated with the wonder worker side of Jesus. Now... And this is one of the big points of the story. Just because someone is um, fascinated with what Jesus can do does not mean that they are actually interested in Jesus himself. Okay, that's one of the big points of the story, and we're going to talk about that. So Jesus and his disciples are looking out on this great crowd of people, 5,000 people, John tells us. And Jesus says to Philip, gee, Philip, however are we going to feed all these people? And it's kind of a funny moment because John tells us that um, Jesus was just testing Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. Right? He already knew he was going to miraculously provide for his people. He was testing Philip. And Philip, typical human being as he is, he just starts getting anxious and he's freaking out. And he's like, ah, even six months wages wouldn't provide a small snack for all of these people. Um, and then, and then Andrew chimes in. 
Now, Andrew is like, I think I was like this when I was a kid, always saying things out loud and then realizing I shouldn't have even said that. That was really stupid. <laughs> and Andrew says, oh, there's a boy with a little bit of fish and bread in his lunchbox. And then he says, why did I even bring that up? That's not going to go very far with 5,000 people. And uh, there's all this uh, anxiety and scrambling about, right? I wonder how often God looks at us scrambling about anxiously throughout our days as if uh, uh, holding the world together is our job and just shakes his head at us. Um, but Jesus puts a halt to their, their doubt-filled, anxiety-ridden conversation, and he says, tell the people to sit down. Okay? And now at this point, they're thinking, oh boy, what is he up to? What is he, what is he gonna do? And Jesus takes this boy's, uh, lunchable, his small box lunch, and he blesses it, and he begins to have it distributed throughout the crowd. And John tells us that miraculously, everyone was fed, and there was even leftovers for the next day. Now, um, I'm not so interested in working out the details of the miracle. I don't think that's actually the point of the story. I think the miracle points to something else. So what I want to actually look at is how the crowd responds to Jesus after uh, the miracle. Notice how they respond. They recognize that it, it could be nothing short of a miracle, right? They recognize that this is, is miraculous because they say, this indeed is the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, why would they say that? Well, if you look back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the scriptures that these people would have known so well, Moses says to the Israelite, and this is thousands of years before Jesus, Moses said to the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. So there was an uh, ongoing expectation that a very special prophet would arise from among the people to lead them to victory and abundance. So it's no surprise that the people actually say, this is a prophet. And a prophet he is. Except he's more than a prophet. And that's actually what the people are missing. They are missing the main thing about his identity. Even after he provides miraculously bread for this multitude, just as Yahweh provided manna for all of the Israelites in the wilderness, they're not making the connection. Right? They actually are more concerned in just having a leader who can provide for their material well-being. That is what they are uh, concerned, uh, they are concerned with. You see what's happening? They're mistaking Jesus' identity. Now, what is it that they're getting wrong exactly? Well, John wants to make sure that we know, and so he gives us this other little story about Jesus walking on water, and it's placed there strategically. It's a very important small story. This is what happens. The disciples are off in a boat later, and it's storming, and they are terrified because not only are the winds picking up, and they're you know bailing the water out of the boat and freaking out, then they start to see a ghostly figure walking towards them on the water. So now they're scared, but then um, it's Jesus, right? And as he gets closer, he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, why would he say that? This little phrase, it is I. If you uh, were to take that from the Greek, ego me is a statement, and you translate it literally, it would literally say, I am. So he says, I am do not be afraid. Now, why would he say that? Where else have we heard the phrase, I am, in the scriptures? You remember uh, when Moses encounters God in the burning bush and he sends him to, to, to lead his people out of slavery and bondage and Moses says, but who should I tell them God is sending me? And, and the Lord says, tell them I am has sent you. 
You see what, Jesus, what John is showing us here in this, in this passage? He's saying, look, the crowds are not getting it. They're mistaking his identity. This is not, this is not just a special king or a prophet. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the flesh, in the midst of his people. Nothing short of amazing. This is actually um, what the crowds are missing, and it's what leads them to actually want what Jesus has rather than wanting Jesus himself. Okay, They're more concerned with blessing that comes from him rather than falling down on their face and adoring and worshiping him as the God of heaven and earth. Now, why do they get his identity wrong? Because they had, they saw him as a means to an end. They saw Jesus as a means to a simple temporal blessing of uh, food or maybe a healing. Now, this is something we need to pay attention to because, like I said, it's easy to point fingers back then, but it's actually a mindset that we can fall into even as committed believers of uh, forgetting Jesus' identity and viewing him wrongly. Right? Viewing him as a dispenser of blessings rather than as Lord and God of our lives. You see, the reality is that sometimes God's favor and present are not as important to us as the things that he can provide. Success, pleasure, wealth, peace, comfort. And so we get focused on those things. And what happens is when we get focused so much on the things that God provides, our relationship with God starts to stand or fall on whether or not he's providing for our needs. I have heard a number of people say, I don't believe in God anymore because he didn't provide for my needs. That's tragic, right? He's the great gumball machine in the sky that you put in a quarter and he, he a prayer and he turns out a, a gumball for you, Right? There's a mistaking his identity, right? As Lord and God of heaven and earth who's worthy of worship. This is exactly what was happening with the crowds in Jesus' day. The problem is that rather than seeing him as the glorious God that he is, they see him as a divine benefactor who exists to make provisions for them. The tragic mistaking of his identity. Now, the problem here, hear me out, the problem isn't that we're not supposed to ask God for things. Jesus says... Uh, tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, right? On a daily basis, he says you should ask God to provide for your needs. And he says the heavenly father, like a good earthly father, delights in giving good gifts to his children, right? He actually likes to answer our prayers, right? So long as they are in accord- accordance with his will and, and for our good, he loves to answer our prayers. That's not the issue. The issue is that we can get so occupied with what Jesus can do for us that we actually lose interest in Jesus. It's a, it's a trap we can all fall into. So I want to ask this question, um, how do we guard ourselves against it? How do we make sure that we don't fall into the trap as Christians? And I want to say, I think one major way is to watch our prayer lives, right? Watch what we pray about. If our prayer lives is really consists of one long daily checklist of things that we want God to provide for us, we need to rethink it, right? It betrays the fact that we're thinking about God as a dispenser of blessings and not so much as Lord and God of our lives. Now, one of the reasons I think we pray like that sometimes, like this showed a clip in a class a few weeks ago um, to demonstrate this. You remember the movie, What About Bob? And Bill Murray was in there and Bob, and he says, give me, give me, give me, I need, I need, right? That's sometimes how we approach prayer. But the reason that we do that sometimes, I think, is because we forget about how relational God is. We think of him as very distant from our prayers, and we think of ourselves of having to convince him of our needs. 
right? But we can see in Jesus, in this story today, um, how much God cares for the needs of his people, right? There's 5,000 people following him around all day long, and Jesus takes note that they haven't had anything to eat. And he thinks out of compassion, he thinks we need to get them fed, right? And so he takes the initiative. He doesn't say, well, they better convince me to feed them. He takes the initiative to have them fed, right? So we see how God cares for his people. You see, how we view Jesus and his identity is going to affect our lives with him. Because if we see him as this kind of aloof, like wonder worker in the sky, we're going to compile a checklist of needs and read it off to him every day and kind of hope maybe he'll answer one or two of these, right? That's that I call that um, Amazon delivery guy God, right? Because he drops off packages at your house occasionally throughout the week and rings the doorbell and goes back to his truck and there's, there's no interaction, right? That's Amazon delivery God. That's not how God of the Bible is, okay? He's a relational God who actually wants us to know him and to walk with him, to love him, to praise him, to adore him, to thank him. Right. Um, If we view Jesus rightly, if we get his identity as right and we remind ourselves that he's not only the one who shepherds our souls and provides for our needs, but he is the Lord and God of heaven and earth. He is on his throne in heaven. We will do more than just ask for things. As important as asking for things is, we will do more than that. We'll develop practices of praise and adoration and thanksgiving that will actually deepen our relationship with him because it will deepen our love for him. We'll start to recognize and respond to his glory where we see it everywhere, right? Um, Not just in his word, but also in beautiful church buildings and the splendor of another human being and the beauty of his creation. And we'll begin to respond and give him praise and glory for all of his wonderful works. Uh, Psalm chapter 37 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, we could read that as, uh, Please God, make God happy, and you'll get what you want. Right? We could read it that way, but actually what it's saying is that if you make God himself your primary source of delight, you will learn how to ask for the right things. Because... If you love God above all things, your desires will start to shift and change. You'll start to want the right things, right? Your desire, uh, you'll desire for yourself what God desires for you. Namely, things that will help you become more like Jesus, right? That's what God wants for all of us. Uh, St. Augustine, bishop in the 4th century, put it like this. He said, we all seek for things that make us happy. And we could call our attachment to those things that make us happy love. We love the things that make us happy. He says there's nothing wrong with that. It's very human. But the problem is, is that because of the sin that resides in our heart, what we do as human beings is we start to love those things that make us happy apart from God. And and we love we love the blessings that God provides, but God himself, Jesus himself, starts to fade into the background. Right? He warns us of that mistake. And he puts it like this. is very beautiful. He says, the good which you love is from him. Right? All that you have, the good is from is that you love is from him. But it is only as it is related to him that it is good and sweet. Otherwise, it will justly become bitter. For all that comes from him is unjustly loved if he has been abandoned. Friends, God desires that we should have what we need, right? We see that in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But what God desires most is that we know him that we recognize the identity of 
his son Jesus, who St. Paul calls the image of the invisible God. Now, there's all kinds of things that we can do to, to build praise and prayer and adoration into our prayer lives. The Psalms is a really good place. But today, I just want to close by pointing out that on a weekly basis, we have the opportunity to adore Jesus in the sacrament of his body and blood. Um, we have the, we have an invitation to come and to receive him, not just to think about him, but he's actually giving himself to us in a very, very mystical way through the body, through his body and blood. And we have the opportunity to adore him and praise him. Um, at, today, as I pray the Eucharistic prayers over the elements, follow along and pray along in your heart and look at the adoration that is given to God in the words of the Eucharistic prayer. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving, right? What we are doing is giving thanks primarily for his sacrifice on the cross and his giving of himself to us through this sacramental bread and wine. Oh, that we recognized what was happening when we celebrated up here. Uh, St. John Vianney, old saint, said that if we understood what the Mass is, we would die of love. And I say, amen, we should die of love, not just for the blessings that God gives us, but love of his most sweet, holy, and worthy son, Jesus, who died for our salvation, that we might have the life that truly is life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, even if you didn't provide for our most basic needs, you would be worthy of our praise. But we thank you that not only do you meet our needs on a daily basis, you invite us into a deep and personal relationship with yourself through your son Jesus. Enable us to give him the honor that is rightly due to him and to not uh, view him as something less than he is. Increase in our hearts the true religion of loving you with all of our heart all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. In Christ's name, amen.